0: Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at NPR.org. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the 1A Podcast. Throughout the pandemic, the Washington National Cathedral has rung its bell to memorialize the lives lost to COVID-19. The cathedral held its final bell ceremony to mark a milestone. One million people nationwide have died from coronavirus. That's higher than the U.S. death toll from AIDS and the 1918 flu.
1: It is terrible, horrible to have that many people die of a transmissible disease. In a two-year period, it is very sobering and very sad and tragic.
0: That was White House Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci speaking with NPR last week. Around the country, most states have dropped COVID-19 restrictions. And while Americans are eager to move on from the pandemic, new variants keep cropping up and infections are on the rise. We'll get into the latest pandemic news, plus last week's mass shootings in Buffalo and Laguna Woods, and a flock of primary racists with a few surprises. Here with us to break it all down is Cheryl Gay-Stolberg. She's a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Cheryl, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be back, Jen. Also joining us is Eugene Scott. He's a national political reporter for The Washington Post. Eugene, it's great to have you back.
1: Thanks for having me again.
0: And Alexis Simendinger. She's a national correspondent for The Hill. Alexis, welcome.
2: Hey, good to talk to you.
0: So as the U.S. hits one million COVID deaths, cases are surging nationwide and hospitalizations are on the rise. Cheryl, how much of an uptick are we seeing and where?
3: We're seeing cases rise really um, throughout the country. And the CDC director warned this week that one third of Americans now live in areas where they should put their masks back on. Um, We're seeing a surge in the sub-variant of Omicron, BA2, is accounting for most of the cases. And yet, as we look out around the country, as you said earlier, people are not wearing their masks. Governors have dropped mask mandates and they're not coming back. Um, we seem to be in a situation where the country wants to move on. Even the President wants to move on. I was struck that President Biden did not uh, speak publicly to the one million deaths. He spoke last week at his Covid nineteen summit to world leaders, but he didn't he he didn't speak publicly. It seems like he's got his mind on other things the war in Ukraine, these shootings in buffalo, inflation. and the the country is very weary, even as we know cases are going up and we're seeing new variants in South Africa that uh, Dr. Fauci said this week are likely to come here. Uh, The administration is expecting a surge and the trend lines are not good, but no one seems to be paying attention.
0: Well, as you said, the CDC now recommends a third of Americans wear masks when indoors in public, and that's based on hospitalizations and case counts where they live. As of this week, that includes New York City. But Mayor Eric Adams said he will not be reimposing a mask mandate.
4: We're doing the right things. Let's be prepared, not panic. Let's get the city up and operating. Another variant is maybe days away. We cannot Uh, allow COVID to control our lives. We need to be smart and responsible. And that's what we're doing.
0: Again, that was New York City Mayor Eric Adams speaking to CNN yesterday. Eugene, talk us through the calculations policymakers are weighing at this stage of the pandemic with cases rising, but many Americans, as Cheryl said, ready to put this ongoing pandemic behind them.
1: Well, I think one of the things that policymakers are paying attention to uh, is the economy, and that is because the economy has been an issue for so many Americans, particularly business owners, over the last two years, that it's an area that lawmakers cannot ignore and not allow (coughs) um, to be absent from the conversation when it comes to the pandemic. And we know that quite a few business owners have uh, suffered significantly during the pandemic, And they fear that moving in a direction where there could be more masking, more lockdowns, more uh, restrictions on their freedom to operate as fully and freely as they would hope to, could lead to more economic problems that will not benefit uh, certain lawmakers in the fall if they make decisions that just seem not in the best interest of the economy.
0: But Cheryl, when we place those calculations within a public health context, and again, it, it has to be repeated that we are still in a pandemic, a global pandemic, it, it boggles the mind a bit that we're still seeing new variants. So are we... I guess cutting off our noses to spite our face. Well,
3: I think, you know, I think that's a really good question. I think that if we look back to where we were when the pandemic began, we thought that, you know, we'd have a var- we'd have a vaccine, everybody would get vaccinated, you know, the virus would go away and we'd have herd immunity, remember that? Mm-hmm. And and that is not that's just not how things have played out. This virus has proved very wily. It's very capable of mutating and morphing into other variants. And we're going to see that, frankly, because we don't have um, global vaccination rates anywhere near they should be. Um, So I do think that we actually are going to have to kind of learn to live with this virus. Several experts have said to me that we're never going to get to zero COVID, but what we need to do is get to zero COVID deaths. And so... um, you're going to see, you know, more emphasis on research into antiviral drugs, into things that can combat COVID. In fact, the NIH just this week um, established several academic centers as um, sites for the development of antiviral medicines. So, you know, we're going to see these kinds of calculations of uh, is the economic disruption worth Doing a lockdown, for instance, you know, we had that debate in twenty twenty. Um, public health experts have kind of realized that other factors are coming into play when political leaders make decisions, and it's that is that is a clash that is going to be
0: ongoing. Well, and Alexis, what are we hearing from lawmakers? What kind of political will is there to put additional, additional money behind researching, behind um, uh, making tests more available for people or therapeutics available? What are you hearing?
2: Well, lawmakers represent the United States in all the spectrums of risk analysis that Cheryl was just describing. So lawmakers have been uh, debating since, uh, well, weeks and weeks, actually months, a request from the administration for additional uh, money for vaccines, for treatments, for precautions, for preparations for the next pandemic uh, beyond even this one. And they willed that amount of money down to 10 billion. And it has been in limbo. And uh, all the reporters that, that I work with at the Hill and all the great ones around Washington are listening to lawmakers on Capitol Hill, wringing their hands about, a debate that's going on in the Senate uh, about leveraging something Republicans care about, which is immigration, Title 42, which is a separate question, uh, and their opposition to the administration lifting the immigration restrictions this coming Monday. And uh, they want to leverage that to this question about voting on additional $10 billion. And uh, all the reporters that I'm talking to and the lawmakers that I've spoken to think that this is going to remain in limbo in the Senate past Memorial Day and possibly past the November election so that the window of time for additional funding may have passed.
0: Well, you mentioned Title 42. I just want to say that we did an explainer on Title 42 earlier this week. You can find that conversation at the18.org. Cheryl, this week the FDA authorized the Pfizer booster for kids ages 5 to 11. This is a long time coming. How are parents in the medical community reacting to this news?
3: Well, you know, I think as with everything else about the coronavirus Parents are, are mixed. Um, in many areas of the country, parents are very eager to get their children vaccinated. They feel vulnerable, especially those with young children and those with kids under five who for whom the vaccine has not yet um, been made available. So, Some, you know, really want to get their kids vaccinated and they want to be able to send them to school and with as much protection as they possibly can. But if you talk to parents in other areas of the country where vaccination rates are low, um, they won't give their kids (laughs) this vaccine. I was reporting in Wyoming a few months ago um, about school efforts, school-based vaccine clinics, and it was really hard for the school nurses... To persuade parents to give their kids the coronavirus vaccine. You would go into this clinic, I did, and it was actually in the school gym, and it said, Vaccines available,
0: not mandatory. Mm. <laughs> um, so it's a mix. Well, a quick mention of another health story we're watching. Officials identified a case of an extremely rare disease called monkeypox in Massachusetts. Spain, Italy, and Canada are also investigating dozens of suspected cases. Monkeypox is a cousin of smallpox. Officials are watching the spread of the disease but say there isn't cause for alarm. We're rounding up the week's top domestic stories. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations. Download our 1A Fox Pop app and leave us a voicemail.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com 1A.
0: You're listening to the News Roundup. The baby formula shortage still poses a huge problem for families here in the U.S. This week, major baby food manufacturer Abbott Nutrition agreed to an FDA consent decree. It would allow them to reopen a closed plant in Michigan to get formula back on the shelves. Now, Alexis, the FDA's deal with Abbott is just one move the federal government has made to address this crisis. This week, President Biden invoked the Defense Production Act, which is usually reserved for wartime. How does it apply here?
2: Well, this is an interesting question because both at the White House and in Capitol Hill, there was a great sense of urgency to try to be responsive to this, caught flat-footed as they were by this um, dilemma. And it took a while for the White House. At first, the, the president was thinking that the Defense Production Act, there was the White House was saying that there was no real immediate utility to being able to use that, that it, it was not really going to be effective to speed things up, but then the President decided to do it, Uh, and apparently the Defense Production Act in this particular case is supposed to be an instruction from the government to manufacturers of the ingredients that go into baby formula, because keep in mind there's just really four main companies in the United States that make infant formula, And uh, there is no guarantee that there is a deadline or a a timing when more uh, supply will be on the shelves. And there was a hearing this week in Capitol Hill with the commissioner of the FDA, and he was also very reluctant to tell a House Appropriations Subcommittee anything related to timing. So that was just one element of it. The administration is also trying to send cargo planes to Europe to try to bring back pallets of formula that help uh, babies who are allergic to cow's milk-related infant formula and try to increase the supply domestically. So people are trying to think constructively about how to alleviate the shortage. But in terms of timing... Parents are not getting anything that's reassuring about this ending soon.
0: If you want to learn more about what's behind the shortage in baby formula and how it's affecting families, you can listen back to a conversation we had earlier this week on the show. We'll tweet out a link at 1A. You can also find it at the 1A.org. Eugene, how has Congress reacted to the president's actions on the formula shortage?
1: Well, we know that nearly 200 Republicans voted against uh, the legislation Democrats presented that they hoped would ease the baby formula shortage. Um, This is at the same time as these same Republicans have criticized the Biden White House for not doing more um, to address this issue. And so there's been great frustration among Democrats, and I think people in general who look to Washington uh, to find a solution to this issue um, and feel as if it hasn't uh, led to anything significant beyond what the Biden uh, White House has proposed to uh, encourage manufacturers to speed up and ramp up um, uh, their you know, products to address the issue. And so we don't know what the next step quite is. Um, from Congress to address it um, despite cause to do so.
0: Let's quickly touch on the economy. The crypto crash continues its steady decline, having lost nearly two trillion dollars in value. Last week, concerns erupted after the Luna coin collapsed, a so-called stable coin. And this comes as Fidelity Investments announced it would allow people to put bitcoins into their 401k accounts. Now, some experts point to the tech sector dragging down Wall Street, which is also in decline. The tech-focused Nasdaq fell nearly 30 percent from its peak in November. The Dow has dropped to its lowest point in two years and reached. Taylor's shares for Target, Lowe's and Walmart have also plunged. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell told the Wall Street Journal this week that interest rates would keep rising until inflation comes down, but he's not worried about disrupting the financial markets.
5: Their volatility has been up a little bit and that has, that has some effect on liquidity in some markets, but nonetheless, um, the markets are orderly, they're functioning. I, I think they're processing uh, the way we're thinking, the way that the FOMC is thinking about policy pretty well. And um, and I think that the, you know, the the idea, again, is to have financial conditions tighten to the point where growth will moderate and still be positive, but moderate to the point where supply and demand can get back in alignment and where we can get inflation back down to two percent.
0: Let's turn now to the latest from last week's mass shooting in Buffalo, where 10 people were killed and three were wounded. A 911 dispatcher has been accused of hanging up on a supermarket employee who called for help during the shooting. The unidentified dispatcher was put on administrative leave and an internal investigation is being conducted. Cheryl, as I said, this this, uh, accusation is still being investigated, but what do we know about what happened here? So
3: what we know is that a supermarket employee at the Topps su- supermarket was in in the store when the shooting was happening, and she called 911, and she was whispering. And she was whispering that there was an active shooter and could they send help. And what she says is that the emergency dispatcher basically said to her, why are you whispering? And she said, because, you know, there's a shooter here. And the, she, the... um. The employee says that the dispatcher actually hung up on her. Um, We know that Buffalo officials said that there was no delay in responding to the store. So despite this, they say that they they had a a prompt response to the shooting. But this dispatcher, whose name we don't know, uh, has been placed on administrative leave after an internal investigation and now faces a disciplinary hearing And the Erie County
0: executive has said that they are going to seek to fire this dispatcher. Alexis, what's the latest on the investigation of the shooting itself?
2: Well, authorities are still trying to pull together as many threads as possible about what the 18-year-old accused shooter was doing before and, and, of course, during the event itself. And so there's lots of interesting information being reported now about uh, the young man's activity on uh, online and on apps that allowed him uh, allegedly to invite others to join in and share in his uh, postings about what he was preparing to do and also the video streaming, the live streaming that he uh, set up while he allegedly was... Uh, massacring uh, these people at the supermarket. So that's one element of the investigation that's continuing. What's the motivation? And part of the reason why that's important is because authorities uh, are are considering at the state and federal level hate crimes and domestic terrorism charges. And all of that will be important, that information about what he was doing before and what he was doing online and whether he invited other people to share in his plot uh, is important to the case. In addition, uh, what we're hearing is that, as part of the investigation, there's uh, you know a lot of discussion about uh, what in the past had happened with this accused assailant, whether there were uh, I guess all kinds of warning signs in which authorities may have dropped the ball so there's a lot of discussion about how this occurred, whether there were others who in the um, supervisory world who would have had reason to have acted on signs that he gave earlier on. And that's another element of the investigation.
0: Well, on Tuesday, President Biden visited Buffalo to grieve with the families of the victims who were killed in Saturday's shooting and to condemn the attack.
4: White supremacy is a poison. It's a poison running through it. It really is. running through our body politic and it's been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes. No more. I mean, no more. We need to say as clearly and force as we can that the ideology of white supremacy
0: has no place in America. None. Eugene, tell us more about what President Biden did during that trip to Buffalo.
1: Well, we know he visited with the families of the victims and Uh, some of the employees at the supermarket where uh, the incident took place. Uh, But he also spoke about his efforts uh, to get Congress to somehow pass uh, a domestic terrorism bill, um, stricter gun laws that could prevent something like this from happening, um, and other measures that uh, people in his party have been calling on lawmakers to make. Legislation and and rules and policies that they would hope uh, could address uh, what is increasingly becoming a problem. But I think what Biden really spoke to um, publicly and privately was his desire to see changed hearts and minds that could somehow uh, decrease the likelihood of these types of incidents from happening again in the future.
0: Well, on Wednesday, the House did vote to pass a bill to prevent domestic terrorism and white nationalist extremism in the wake of the shooting. Cheryl, how would this bill tackle domestic terrorism?
3: So the bill would create three um, offices of domestic terrorism across federal agencies, the FBI, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Homeland Security. And it also calls for leaders of those three agencies to submit a joint report twice a year um, with a particular focus on the threats posed by white supremacists and neo-Nazis, including, I thought this was really interesting, including the infiltration of federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies Mm -hmm. and the uniformed services by members of these groups. And it's interesting to note that this bill, a similar bill, was passed by voice vote two years ago. But when the House voted on it, um, almost all the Republicans, all but one,
0: um, voted against it. How have those numbers shifted this time around?
3: Well, that's what I'm saying. When the, it was passed by voice vote two years ago, but when it when they voted on it just now, oh, the, the uh, current the, vote, mm-hmm. the current vote, yes, two hundred passed two hundred twenty-three to two oh three, and only one Republican, Adam Kinzinger, joined um, all the Democrats who were there in voting yes. And we don't really know what's going to happen with this bill in the Senate. And you know, if history is any guide, the the Senate. Um,
0: in our in this current Congress, does not approve what the House passes. One person was shot dead and five were wounded in a shooting at a Taiwanese church in Laguna Woods, California, on Sunday. That suspect is facing several charges, including murder. Alexis, what more do we know about this shooting?
2: Well, uh, this shooting involved um, an Asian uh, man, age 68, who is an American citizen but Chinese-born. And uh made no mystery because he wrote extensive notebooks about this uh, and actually mailed them to a Chinese newspaper, it turns out, uh, describing his uh hatred of uh Taiwan and Taiwanese. And he described himself in some of his writings as um kind of a, in an unusual way, described himself as a destroying angel. And he wanted to make a case by driving from his home in Las Vegas to this church that he actually was had no affiliation with to kind of draw attention to his uh, opposition to uh, Taiwan. And uh, he went to a Taiwanese church in the Laguna Woods and killed one person and injured five. And uh, all based on his, I guess, brewing uh, hatred of a completely different sort than... Uh, we're used to seeing. And uh, obviously, he's um, been apprehended and facing multiple charges. Uh, And uh, I think the authorities are, including the FBI, are diving deep into these notebooks that he created, uh, multiple notebooks that he then um, mailed to a Chinese newspaper.
0: The Buffalo shooting and the Laguna Woods shooting happened in the span of one weekend, and they're both being investigated as hate crimes Eugene, how are you reflecting on on this moment? Well, I think it
1: is um, not a shocking uh, experience for journalists to uh, cover these types of incidents, unfortunately, given how frequent they are becoming. Uh, But to know that uh, these types of uh, hateful acts are happening within uh, closer proximity time-wise to one another and in targeting two very different, but also obviously similar demographics uh, that have been trying to bring attention to discrimination on their communities uh, over the past year has really forced journalists to pay more attention to an issue that many critics outside of the media have said have too long been ignored uh, in mainstream media. And it'll be interesting to see uh, what coverage looks like moving forward in the future uh, as cause to really speak to this national uh, plague continue.
0: Alexis, we heard from Cheryl that only one Republican voted in favor of this legislation that would hopefully help the government address the spread of white nationalism in the country. What do you think it says about the state of our politics that that was the breakdown of the, of the vote?
2: Has occurred in the time that Shell described between a voice vote and a roll call vote is that in a midterm year there's a, a tremendous allergy among uh, Republican candidates to the the idea of being um, uh, being roped together with white nationalism and, and white supremacy, and uh, their effort is to try to dodge it. In other words, to, not to try to give Democrats additional uh, ammunition to oppose uh, Republicans. And with the January 6 attack and the influence of Donald Trump, the politics of racism or the elements of uh, how to woo voters has changed enormously. And I think that's one of the takeaways from this year.
0: Well, let's turn now to this week's primaries. Pennsylvania State Senator Doug Mastriano has won the Republican primary for governor. The far-right lawmaker was a central figure in former President Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Briefly, Alexis, tell us about State Senator Mastriano.
2: Well, he uh, he actually is a, a, a primary victor that Republicans are shaking their heads about in the Republican Party in its more centrist and traditional. Form is worried about uh, how he will become an instant target and perhaps cost the party uh, a seat uh, that might have been theirs if they had chosen in Pennsylvania a different GOP candidate. And part of the reason is because he is associated with his support for former President Trump and He has been so outspoken about the idea that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president. He has told voters that he would like, as governor, to continue to uh, adjust uh, voting uh, laws and procedures in Pennsylvania and continue to try to uh, pursue an overturning of the 2020 uh, election return. He is just very wedded to this idea, and it has, of course, helped him get the support of, of the former president, for his race. He has said also that his priorities, if he were elected as governor, would be uh, any kind of mandates uh, that relate to the pandemic or COVID-19 would be gone. Uh, Any requirements for vaccines for COVID-19 or any vaccines would be gone. He has said critical race theory in the state of Pennsylvania. Any kind of uh, move in the states uh, would be barred uh, in schools, et cetera. He says um, only biological females in the state of Pennsylvania would be able to play on uh, biological female teams. And uh, he's talked about bathrooms that only um, your biological anatomy can tell you where you can go to the bathroom in the state of Pennsylvania. So he has really been uh, deeply, deeply associated with a far right agenda agenda. Uh, that has been blessed by former President Trump,
0: Eugene, what insight, if any, do you think his primary victory gives us into the midterms in November?
1: Well, I think we know um, that the Trump contingent of the GOP is still very alive and well and activated, which is something uh, that many wondered uh, if would be the case with the former president not being as uh, vocal, obviously on social media, as he has been in the past because of his bans. But it's also telling because there seems to be uh, a vocal uh, you know, component of uh, conservative voters who really are looking for something um, beyond uh, Trumpism. And we're hoping that they'd be more victorious in having uh, someone win some of these competitions, these primary races uh, that could move the party in the future and not be so focused on uh, relitigating the 2020 uh, election. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. And it's certainly not the case in some other races.
0: You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to the News Roundup. Well, let's turn to Idaho, where County Clerk Phil McCrain won the GOP primary for Secretary of State. McGrain defeated two candidates, Representative Dorothy Moon and State Senator Mary Souza, both of whom are proponents of the big lie uh, that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from former President Trump. Alexis, what does this Idaho race tell us about which facet of the Republican Party voters are gravitating towards right now?
2: In, in Idaho, the, the, the picture is a little bit different because the... Um, The candidate who won accepts mr biden as president you know whereas the other two republican candidates for secretary of state were very eager to push election falsehoods so in some ways it's a a, it's a mirror of a different kind of approach to the candidates and what that the rule that we're trying to establish about the strength of, of president trump and his convictions about the 2020 election It's not necessarily holding up in in every particular race. But the secretary of state races in these primaries have been so interesting. And I'm thinking of Georgia in particular, uh, because Republicans are so intent on looking at the secretary of state positions as uh, an opportunity to really clamp down on control over elections and voting in their states.
0: Well, returning to Pennsylvania for the moment, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, a Democrat, won that state's primary for the Senate seat on Thursday. The results of the contentious Republican primary between Mehmet Oz, also known as Dr. Oz, and David McCormick are still pending. Cheryl, first, who is Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and what's significant about his win? So think Jesse Ventura. Uh,
3: Lieutenant Governor Fetterman is sort of this quirky kind of guy he's a big guy he's like six foot eight he's got you know tattoos, and he really appeals to um the working man and I think Democrats um in Pennsylvania are very excited about him. He beat Connor lamb, who is a congressman and who has always been a very centrist, kind of of middle-of-the-road guy. Um, Fetterman has been a frequent presence on MSNBC. He's got a lot of Twitter followers. His dogs have their own Twitter account. Um, And so I think that um, Democrats are are very excited um, about him. The Philadelphia Inquirer said Fetterman doesn't have supporters so much as he had fans. And I think the feeling among Democrats is that he could appeal to the kind of working class Democrats in Pennsylvania who crossed over to vote for Trump.
0: Well, turning now to North Carolina, freshman Congressman Madison Cawthorn lost the Republican primary election to State Senator Chuck Edwards. Eugene, Cawthorn lost by a a slim margin, around 1,500 votes. What happened here and why is it significant?
1: Well, we know uh, from talking to voters uh, on the ground is that many older voters in uh, Cawthorn's district, individuals who were very much behind sending him to Washington uh, two years ago, uh, concluded that he was incredibly too inexperienced and immature uh, to continue to represent them in Congress. Uh, They voted against him and for a conservative that had the support of so many influential Republicans in the state of North Carolina and beyond um, and ultimately decided that all of the controversy and the viral uh, leaks about past videos and uh, photos were just too much of a distraction uh, for them and they wanted to back someone they felt like uh, could actually handle the responsibilities of being a lawmaker.
0: Alexis, as you're watching the primaries play out, are there any trends emerging to you or things that you're watching closely?
2: Well, we've we've been talking about the, the trend of what is uh, former President Trump's influence over these GOP primaries. And I think the flip side on the Democrats is uh, uh, they're not getting as much attention, but the question is, I think the trend is, what kind of Democrats, as Cheryl was pointing out, Fetterman is considered a progressive, but a kind of a working class, uh, you know, uh, tolerable sort of progressive in that state. Um, so Democrats, I think, are trying to figure out what are the messages that they need to send, how are they campaigning, and and how are they going to surmount the weakness that uh, President Biden presents in job approval ratings and the economic undertow of what's happening in the election. So. Among the trends, I think, that we're watching closely are just how are Democrats trying to deal with the idea of the power shifting, the expectation that the House might flip to Republican control next year. What are their messages? What are they trying to tell voters that they're doing? What's the battle between progressives and uh, the more centrist Democrats who think that's the way this
0: election needs to go? Eugene, what about for you? What are you watching?
1: I very much want to see... Uh, what will happen um, with Democrats in terms of how they will respond to uh, conservatives who attack their actions or lack of actions over the past two years, um, because Democrats have had a very difficult time figuring out a message. And I'm wondering if this will be a moment that will empower them to communicate to voters what it is that they have done, um, and if that will ultimately be winsome to help lighten uh, the blowback that Democrats uh, are expecting, at least privately Uh, in the midterm elections.
0: And Cheryl, for you, are there any specific trends you're watching or or things you're keeping a close eye on as the primaries continue to roll out?
3: Yeah, so I'm I'm keeping a close eye on how the parties or whether the parties are moving to their extremes so that means as Alexis said the influence of Donald Trump how will you know what how will Trump back candidates do but I'm also really interested in um, how the progressive Democrats do and there are a couple of key races that I'm watching um, in Pennsylvania a race that got less attention uh, is the race between summer Lee who is very progressive backed by the justice Democrats um, a primary for a house seat between summer Lee and uh, Steve Irwin, who is basically like an older you know, business and labor lawyer. And it seems like Summer Lee is destined to win. And that ha- has um, Democrats, progressive Democrats, very happy. And they are also watching, and I am watching, A rematch between uh, Jessica Cisneros and Congressman Henry Cuellar in Cuellar's district in Texas. Cuellar is also a very middle-of-the-road Democrat. He also happens to be under federal investigation at the moment. Cisneros um, was once his intern. She's very progressive, uh, has been backed again by Justice Democrats, which is the group that helped elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Um, That is going to be the next big test, I think, of progressive versus
0: moderates um, in the Democratic Party, in the Texas primary coming up. In Kansas this week, the state's Supreme Court reversed a decision by the lower courts that found the state's legislature's map was gerrymandered on political and racial lines. Alexis, quickly walk us through what happened here.
2: Well, this is a situation that's interesting because the Supreme Court Exerted its authority to basically say that a map uh, that the uh, some in the legislature and, and those who sued litigated against it thought that this was um, clearly um, gerrymandered for political reasons, and the Supreme Court basically intervened and said, "No, it looks this looks fine. This this can go through." What we've been watching in this election year about. Gerrymandering and uh, mapping has been interesting because uh, Democrats have thought it was going to be so abysmal for them. And it turned out that in state-by-state uh, mapping, the situation that will last for another 10 years, uh, Democrats in some states have, have been happier, and in some states, Republicans have been un- unhappy. So this question about mapping is very fundamental and will be continue to be debated. Uh, for the next go-round 10 years from now, but it will be heavily influenced by those who get elected to these positions that we've been talking about, Secretary of State or those who are election officials, what happens to the state legislature. And so that's why the trend is important.
0: Well, and the efforts of Kansas Republicans to maintain power might hurt the chances of Representative Sharice Davids, the only Democrat in Congress from Kansas. Here she is in an interview with Aliyah Chavez on Indian Country Today back in March.
2: I just want to make sure that at the end of the day that it's it's the voters in our communities who are deciding who they're sending to Congress or our state legislatures,
5: because that's the way that it's supposed to be. And um, at the end of the day,
2: you know, we are here to serve our communities and it shouldn't be that lawmakers are deciding uh, who, gets, who gets sent to Congress or who gets sent to our state
0: legislatures. In a recent statement, Representative Davids called the Kansas legislature's drawing of the map rushed and lacking transparency. Eugene, specifically around this question of redistricting, what are you watching, not just in Kansas, but across the country?
1: Well, beyond Kansas, uh, one thing that really um, has in my eye regarding redistricting, redistricting is New York. Um, there has been some redrawing of lines that uh, could possibly lead uh, Democratic uh, lawmakers to compete against one another. In fact, I mean, we have seen some already. Um, Jerry Natler speak out about running against uh, Carolyn Mahoney uh, in a a race that, um, you know, will put two veteran lawmakers up against each other um, to fight for the support of voters. And it will be interesting to see if efforts uh, from Republicans to have uh, maps that favor them um, lead to Democrats speaking out against that more aggressively or just uh, succumbing to infighting.
0: Alexis, I'll give you the last word here, specifically around this question of redistricting.
2: Well, uh, it's, it has become such a fraud and interesting um, debate over the time that I've been a reporter in Washington. i Remember, administrations, I, I'm thinking in some ways of the Obama administration kind of waking up to the idea that this is something that they needed to pay attention to, uh, that the, the details of this process every 10 years is now become such a political football. So just the element of how this has changed over time is striking to me in the world of politics, because uh, both parties and both parties are definitely trying to exert uh put their thumb on the scale to create maps that, are, that favor them. And the sophistication, the money, the politics behind this effort has really increased over time.
0: That's Alexis Simendinger. She's a national correspondent for The Hill. Also with us, Eugene Scott, a national political reporter for The Washington Post, and Cheryl Gay-Stolberg, a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Alexis, Eugene, Cheryl, thanks for your time. Remember, we are on Instagram. You can follow us at The1A Show. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, and Chris Castano is our digital editor. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. Every week, we set aside this hour to focus on what's been going on overseas. And there's a lot to get to. Accusations from the UN and the United States that Russia is now using food as a weapon of war. There is no effective solution
6: to the food crisis without reintegrating Ukraine's food production into world markets despite the war. Russia must permit the safe and secure export of grain stored in Ukrainian ports. Alternative transportation routes can be explored, even if we know that by itself they will not be enough to
0: solve the problem. We'll touch on stories from Mogadishu, Kabul and Budapest. But first, let's get to our panel. They're spread across the world today. Idris Ali is here in D.C. He's a foreign policy correspondent at Reuters covering the Pentagon. Idris, welcome back.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: Vivian Salama joins us from Ukraine. She's a national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Vivian, thanks for making time for us. Hi, John. And David Rennie is in China. He's the Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. David, always great to have you. Hello. Well, let's start in Kiev, Ukraine's capital with Vivian. As someone who's been frequently in and out of the country these past three months, Vivian, what's changed where you are?
7: Well, a lot has definitely changed. Obviously, um, the war continues to rage on uh, almost now for for three months and counting, Um, but it's being consolidated um, in the eastern areas. Um, Russia still occupies uh, more territory than they did prior to February 24th, but at the same time, the Ukrainian military has also celebrated a number of Um, uh, victories, large and small, in these recent months. uh, They managed to fend off an attack on Kyiv, a severe attack on Kyiv. There have been attacks, but nothing uh, to the extent that uh, some had feared. And I have to tell you, the capital now is almost back to normal. Sandbags are starting to come down. There was a a jazz band at a restaurant that I popped into the other day. I mean, the cafes are are packed. And so there does seem to be... um, a return to normalcy in parts of the country, but in the east, uh, definitely still a very uh, critical situation. Uh, the second largest city, Kharkiv, is still under bombardment, although Ukrainian forces are still making uh, headway there. And then, of course, um, the big story of this week was um, the situation in Mariupol, the port city, which, uh, which you know, has been a scene of dramatic fights. Uh, lastly, at this steel plant at uh, called Azovstal, uh, Ukrainian forces there surrendered this week, which was uh, a big blow for morale for the Ukrainian military, which had been doing quite well in the in this fight. But um, uh, it's a very uh, perilous situation and one that's ongoing because. Um, those fighters are essentially going to become prisoners of war. And the Ukrainian military now working very diligently to try to get a prisoner exchange for that for to save their lives.
0: Well, another major development this week, a Russian soldier was put on trial for war crimes in Ukraine. He pleaded guilty. Will we see more trials? And, And what is he accused of doing?
7: So the 21-year-old Russian sergeant is uh, has admitted, pleaded guilty to fatally shooting uh, 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 Alexander Shalipov, uh in northeastern uh, in northeastern Kyiv in, in late February in northeastern Ukraine. Pardon me, in late February, and so prosecutors have been trying to push for life sentence, which is the harshest penalty that you can get here um, under Ukrainian law. Um, and they're really trying to make an example of him essentially to say that these kinds of, uh uh, crimes will not be tolerated, even in times of war. That they do plan on uh, uh, prosecuting and holding to account anyone who goes after civilians. And this uh, young sergeant is is among those who they're trying to make an example of. They say that there will be more trials like this. But of course, there is behind this whole effort to uh, prosecute and, and bring to light war crimes here in the country. There is also this this notion and this belief that. That if they can get some of these high-profile, a higher-profile uh, 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 captives. There could be more opportunities for prisoner swaps, and especially after what we've seen, where you have potentially about a thousand fighters from Mariupol now in Russian uh, control, soon to be in Russian hands, if not already in Russian hands, plus all the other soldiers too. This could be uh, an opportunity for them to to kind of negotiate their their settlement. But in the meantime, um, this is the first trial of its kind since the war began, and and Ukrainian officials are are committed very much to uh, prosecute anyone else who they
0: can uh, in the coming months and days to come. Now, the U.N. held a meeting on global food security this week, and the U.S. Secretary of State addressed what he called, quote-unquote, the greatest global food security crisis of our time. Tony Blinken pushed back on claims that actions taken by the West against Russia were to blame.
6: When we impose sanctions on
5: Russia in order to end the war as quickly as possible, we deliberately and carefully
4: created exceptions for agricultural goods and fertilizer. There are
3: an estimated 22 million tons of grain sitting in silos in Ukraine right now. Food that could immediately go toward helping those in need if it can simply get out of the country.
0: David, what impact is this having on the global food supply, but also on Russians themselves? It's
6: having a really terrible impact. And of course, we're right to focus on Uh, the suffering in Ukraine and the war in Ukraine. But let's not forget, Ukraine is also an unbelievably kind of breadbasket to the world. So listeners will remember the flag of Ukraine is a blue stripe and then a golden stripe beneath. That is basically a picture of a cornfield. And that reflects Ukraine's uh, unbelievable importance. Between Russia and Ukraine, they provide uh, 12 percent of all of the calories, not just all the grain, but all of the calories that the world consumes. And some countries in particular, like uh, countries in the Middle East, Libya and Egypt, two-thirds of their cereals come from Ukraine and from Russia. And this is not just a a humanitarian crisis, as pointed out by the United Nations Secretary General. It is also, tragically, a political fight between great powers. So you have Russia, which is not allowing ships to to come out with this Ukrainian grain, in some cases stealing grain and taking it to to places like Syria. You have Ukraine, which is uh, not willing to lift the mines that lead between Uh, the main port in Odessa and the open sea. Uh, You also have countries like China, where I am, which is saying to every number, any number of African countries or Latin American countries who are seeing sort of social unrest and food protests because uh, things like wheat prices have gone up about 60 percent since the beginning of the year, in part because of droughts in some big India, India and China and some big countries, but also because of this war. Countries like China, which want to present themselves as kind of anti-Western champions, their message to the global South, to Africa and to the Middle East and to Latin America is, if your people are starving, if they can't afford food, it is the fault of the Americans. It's the fault of those Western sanctions on Russia. That's why you heard the American Secretary of State trying to push back on that argument. But, you know, even if you don't have an argument about sanctions, the Chinese argument and others, including the Russians, to the whole of the global South is your people are suffering agonizing food price rise rises and energy price rises because the americans bullied the russians into this war this is the fault of the selfish rich west which isn't going to starve once again making the global south pay the price of this adventure this kind of imperialist adventure and i'm afraid there is evidence that a large number of countries in the global south that is to some extent resonating so this is not just an argument about the war it's also an argument about who is to blame for this massive humanitarian crisis, because we are going to see hundreds of millions of people around the world slip from kind of being very poor into not being able to buy food for their families that day. And that is a catastrophe caused in part by bad weather,
0: climate change, but really absolutely also caused by this war in Ukraine. So Idris, what is the path forward here for people who are trying to feed their families? Yeah, so
5: when we sort of look at it through the lens of Russia, Ukraine, um, you know, th- 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 there are basically two issues. One is the amounts of food that is stored and not able to be moved. And secondly, is because of the war, farmers' content to the lands. So the sort of the tending to the lands is one of those things which will be really, really tough to deal with with, you know, bombs coming in and until the war really dies down, even if there's no ground invasion, if if the rocket's flying in, you know, farmers probably won't be going out into their fields. The second issue is what to do with the grains and the supplies that are sort of sitting in warehouses. And, you know, previously they were moved through ports like Odessa those have basically been closed down the russians have basically you know closed access in the black sea and so there's this debate about what to do one option is to try to move some of the supplies um, through rail services, but that's expensive and can take time. Um, and, and so that's something they're, they're they're looking at. The other option that was brought up um, during the conference was what about uh, the United States sort of opening up the Black Sea, helping open up the ports and, you know, sort of uh, escorting ships in and out. And that's something the Biden administration hasn't been willing to do for a number of reasons. Well, firstly, because it's dangerous because a lot of the Black Sea is now mined. A- and secondly, you know, The Biden administration has made one thing clear, which is that the U.S. military will not get involved in this conflict so that it doesn't spill over or escalate. Um, So there's really no appetite for the United States uh, and its military to sort of allow or help some of these supplies to move through ports. And so now they're sort of looking at mechanisms by which the United United Nations could help, but um, they all appear pretty tentative. And, and, you know, in the short term, it's tough to see how this will... uh, be alleviated anytime soon.
0: Ukraine has led the news for three months now, and here's an update from one voice that's notably missing from the coverage, that of Marie Colvin. She was one of the leading foreign correspondents of her generation and was killed in 2012, covering the war in Syria. This week, Colvin's collection of books on the Middle East was donated by her family to a rebuilt library in Mosul, Iraq. The University of Mosul library was one of the first institutions destroyed by ISIS during its three-year occupation. It reopened earlier this year with support from the U.N. We got this comment from Kurt in Illinois, who says Putin is not going to park his bombers and dock his subs because he has won Mariupol. Where are the bombs and missiles going to fall next? Is NATO going to stand by while Putin turns Odessa into another Mariupol? I hope not. Uh, Vivian, do we have any idea of what Putin plans next?
7: Well, there's a lot of talk about him wanting to secure a southern corridor, and so that listener was very uh, correct to raise questions about Odessa in particular, which is sort of the crown jewel of that southern corridor, and especially because it leads into Crimea and would essentially guarantee Russian forces this unhindered um, corridor on the, uh, along the uh, southern coast of Ukraine. Um, but so far, that city is held out. I'm actually heading there in the next day or so, and what we know is the city is holding out. There are are some areas um, of trouble spots around the city, but for the most part, it has been doing okay. Um, there is a very hotly contested battle right now for Snake Island, which is not far from Odessa, um, and that is one of the big battles that could really um, essentially determine what then happens to Odessa and those surrounding areas. But for now, um, there is a bit of a stalemate there. In the meantime, we do believe that. Uh, that Putin is going to be focusing on uh, consolidating and holding onto as much territory as he's managed to grab in the Eastern part of the country. Um, obviously he, uh, this the Russian backed separatists had already been um, active in, in the East and there had been this, this full war that's been going on since 2014, but that territory has expanded as far as the Russians being able to control certain parts. And so for as long as at least he can hold on to that, uh, he will. And what officials keep on telling me is uh, President Putin is a lot more patient than a lot of others, especially in the West, where there's a lot of other um, needs and interests. Washington is concerned about, you know, inflation and elections are coming, and there's so many different distractions, and President Putin is waiting to, willing to play the long game on this. And so that is the real risk going forward, is that there is um, a complacency that will develop while Vladimir Putin all the while is, is is able to kind of hold out and, and continue this kind of um, boiling, uh, simmering battle in the
0: East. So we shall see what happens. Well, Kurt mentioned NATO earlier this week. Sweden's ambassador to the United States joined 1A. Karen Olaf's daughter told us about her country's decision to apply to NATO.
2: The attack on the Ukraine on the 24th of February really changed things. And we saw that Russia could attack a neighboring country that they have been so close to forever and, you know, families and friends have relatives in both Russia and the Ukraine and so on. A neighbor country, which is a sovereign country, a democracy, unprovokedly was attacked with such brutality. That really changed it for us.
0: On Thursday, the leaders of Sweden and Finland were in Washington to meet President Biden. Idris, as we said, Sweden and Finland want to join NATO. Who and what stands in their way? Yeah,
5: you know, this is one of those things that would have sort of been unimaginable maybe four months ago. But Russia's invasion really has changed the calculus within those countries and the region. And, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, this appeared to be sort of this easy walk in the park um, where most countries would agree to it. And the way NATO works is every Country in the alliance has to agree to it. And what we've seen in the past few days or in the past week is Turkish President Erdogan basically saying he would not accept this because of his concerns about what he says are sort of PKK um, terrorist um, activists in both countries. And secondly, he is still um, unpleased with um, sort of these. embargo that was placed on Turkey after they invaded parts of Syria in 2019. So President Erdogan has publicly said that he will not support it. With that being said, um, President Erdogan in the past has been known to take sort of these really um, sweeping positions um, that go initially appear to be going against NATO, but basically using them as negotiating tactics. So I think the conventional wisdom is that even though Turkey has publicly said they're not going to allow Turkey and Finland to join. Um, they're using it as leverage to get either sanction relief, weapon packages from the United States, and then eventually will, uh, will allow Finland and, and, and Sweden in. But it's one of those things that I think the Biden administration and NATO um, probably didn't foresee and probably were hoping wouldn't happen given how the alliance has been remarkably united um, so far.
0: Let's turn now to Somalia, which has a new president. But Hassan Sheikh Mohammed ran the country before, from 2012 to 2017. And this election result lay in the hands of just 328 lawmakers. David, who is this president and why was he reelected? So, Somalia has not had anything
6: close to a democratic election since 1969. Uh, it's a desperately poor country, uh, it has been riven with factional. Uh, in fighting, but also clan infighting, uh, since uh, since you know for, for for 50 years, this election uh, was not an election where people went to vote in ballot stations. As you say, 328 people. Who are those? Those are members of the Somali Parliament. And even creating a single Somali centralised parliament was a major achievement back in 2012. It was a sign that the kind of 30 year civil war, uh, uh, 20 year civil war at that time was 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 easing a bit but these members of parliament they are themselves not elected by the member, by the population uh, of somalia they are elected basically by clan delegates who are elected by clan elders uh, it's a very kind of uneasy very murky power mix and the previous president uh, had basically uh, lost control of enough factions to maintain power it had actually been delayed for 15 months these elections because of infighting between those different interests and also the fact that the country is very insecure large chunks of it are controlled by the al shabaab Uh, extremist Islamist network, which has pledged allegiance to al-Qaeda. And that's why the outside world, above all, the United States cares quite closely about what is happening in Somalia, because this is not just a very badly run, very unhappy, very poor country. It's also the home to a major terrorist group, al-Shabaab. So the hope is that this leader brought back in, having lost power in 2017, he has said good things about wanting help from the Americans, the outside world, to fight the Al-Shabaab terrorists. And I guess the Americans will hold their noses and
0: take that as a win. Well, U.S. officials confirmed Monday that more than 400 U.S. troops would redeploy full time to the East African nation. Uh, Donald Trump withdrew most U.S. troops from the country in the closing days of his presidency. Here's Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby speaking to reporters earlier this week.
7: We know that in the past they have expressed at least the intent and desire to attack outside the region, including against American interests. So uh, we're watching this closely. Uh, This is not a threat that's going away. It's not like we haven't been doing anything in Somalia at all. That's not true. It's just the secretary believes and the president has approved his recommendation that a better, more efficient way to get at
2: that threat is to have a more persistent presence.
0: The White House has also approved a Pentagon request to target and kill suspected al-Shabaab leaders. Vivian, from your sources at the Pentagon, how concerned are they that the threat from al-Shabaab is growing?
7: Uh, this is something that um, they've been talking about now for quite some time. And so uh, when this announcement was made for those of us who have been following this issue closely, it wasn't really a surprise because of the fact that concern had been growing, that ha- not having that military presence within Somalia was putting them at a disadvantage. They had been rebased in uh, Kenya and Djibouti, which, you know, obviously gave them some regional perspective, but to be on the ground there, they felt was probably going to be more beneficial to them. But There were a lot of security concerns. There was also a lot of reprioritization as far as uh, troop uh, reallocations and things like that. And so it has taken some time for them to really get to the point also in talking to the Somalian government and with their own transitions going on uh, to come to an agreement on what they wanted to do. And so um, definitely something that they've been thinking about for quite some time, but they did believe that this was now the time to act on it. And it was partially due to the fact that um, Shabab's activities do not seem to be, uh, you know, getting any any less or any. Uh, they do. They don't seem to be uh, lessening in any way. They just seem to be potentially uh, prop more growing more problematic by the day. And so, um, this is where we stand. Whether or not we maintain this 500 troop uh, level or um, or increase it over time just really depends on the threat level. But for now, the Pentagon seems to really want to keep it to this bare minimum. And so that is where we stand today. It's a big picture, what's at stake here?
5: Yeah, I mean, look, President Trump um, throughout his administration tried to remove U.S. troops and disengage militarily um, from the world, and he was largely unsuccessful in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria. Obviously, Afghanistan turned out to change later on. Um, but one of the last things he did, uh, foreign policy-wise, was to remove troops from Somalia. And I think, you know, under his administration, we saw this sort of, removal of US foreign policy or US military from foreign policy, looking more inwards. And now what I think we're seeing is another sort of reset where the United States and the Biden administration is saying, look, we sort of agree with the premise that we don't want to be engaged in foreign wars, be the police of the world, but we also have this responsibility. And with the French and some other partners leaving other parts of Africa, like the Sahel, the United States really does need to be engaged. So I think broadly, it sort of shows this awareness and just understanding that if the United States isn't engaged, 10 years down the line, five years down the line, groups like Al-Shabaab could become a problem and it could draw the United States further in and deeper in if something were to happen in that region.
6: David, your thoughts? Look, Somalia is is not a tiny country. It's 15 million people. It's it's had some form of civil war since the the beginning of the 90s. And you know the reason that listeners will remember seeing kind of you know images of American troops in real trouble in Somalia under the Clinton administration is because you know no American president wakes up in the morning dreaming of sending troops to a place like Somalia. It's not you know their their their, their top priority, but. As Idris says, you know, we have seen before that when you have a completely failed state uh, in, a, in a in an area rife with kind of Islamist uh, kind of uh, forces, not only can they try and stage terrorist attacks outside their own borders. And there is uh, an accusation that a Shabab-trained uh, suspected terrorist was being trained in the Philippines to fly planes, potentially in a kind of rerun of the 9-11 attacks. But in any case, the region is already a kind of tinderbox, uh, not helped uh, by Islamist insurgencies all over the rest of Africa, but also climate change. you know you have 3.5 million people uh, nearly starving to death in Somalia at the moment because of a terrible drought. and we're going to see more and more of the world not wanting to engage with the world's most unhappy countries in places like Africa, but a whole you know cascade of problems, whether it's uh, Islamist extremism, climate change, starving people to death, all of these problems they're just going to keep coming back. Uh, and as Idri says, President Biden, like many American presidents, doesn't want America to be the policeman of the world. But a world with no policeman at all is just that bit scarier than sending
0: American troops to the other side of the world. Next to Afghanistan in a small but powerful act of defiance against the Taliban. In all but a handful of provinces in the country, girls' secondary schools have been ordered to remain closed by the country's leaders. This week, the BBC's Secunder Kamani reported from one secret school for girls and heard from one student about why she's willing to take the risk. Are you afraid of what could happen to you? If
7: they arrest me, uh, they beat me. But it's worth it to
5: do that. It's worth it? Of
7: course, of course it's
6: worth it. Taliban officials admit
5: that female education is a sensitive issue for them, with some influential
6: hardliners apparently opposed to it. But in private, others within the group have expressed their disappointment at the decision not to allow all girls' schools to reopen.
0: Also this week, quite the scoop for CNN's Christian Amanpour, who interviewed one of the FBI's most wanted. She had this direct question for Siraja Haqqani uh, who's now the acting interior minister of Afghanistan. Do you believe that young girls, secondary school girls, will be allowed to go to school
6: here in Afghanistan?
4: there is no one who opposes education for women. Through this interview, I am assuring that there is no one opposed to education. Only that work has started on the mechanism.
0: That was Sir Rajadin Haqqani, the acting interior minister of Afghanistan. Vivian, the same argument was being made decades ago by the Taliban. What sense do you have that they're just out of step with the people of that country.
7: It definitely seems that the uh, the the optimism that followed um, the U.S. Uh, invasion and just sort of the um, reestablishment of a non Taliban government, uh, women going back to school, women uh, enjoying various positions in the workplace and the government. You know that that really um, changed the outlook of the country, and you have an entire generation people who have been living for twenty years without um, in the post Taliban rule who have essentially. Um, learned about um, their society through the lens of this post-invasion era. And the Taliban taking over last summer was a real shock for so many of these people, but most of all, of course, for women who had been empowered because of that 2001 invasion. And so you know there was there was a sense um initially um among some or hope among some that the Taliban had figured out uh, that they could not reimpose some of those uh, just uh, suffocating uh, views that they had been and laws that they had been uh, prior to the invasion and that the society had changed, the world had changed, and maybe this was a new and reformed Taliban. Now, I want to emphasize that a lot of people were not very optimistic about that, but the US government and uh, Western allies were at least publicly saying, let's wait and see, let's give them a chance. And sure enough, over the months that they have been in power since last August, we see a lot of the old Taliban uh, rhetoric coming out, and especially with regard to women and education. Uh, That interview that you just played with Haqqani was um, pretty bonkers in a lot of ways, but also very um, relevant to uh, exposing what the Taliban is really thinking on these issues, where he didn't necessarily push back and say, no, we want women to go to school. What he said is, There was one quote in particular, he said, quote, we keep naughty women at home. And he emphasized that they don't believe that women should be kept home from school and the workplace. They just believe that only naughty women should. And they're trying to emphasize laws that keep with their national, cultural and traditional principles. And so... Uh, you know all of this is to say that this has been um, alarming for a lot of people most of all the Afghan women who had really hoped that everything that they had established over the last 20 years and all of the rights and opportunities that they had found over the last 20 years were going to stay because the Taliban knew that uh, their all eyes were on them and this was such a critical time for them the Taliban needed to um, win the hearts and minds not only of the Afghan people but
0: also of Western governments who would be providing aid especially humanitarian aid for the country. Why are some of America's leading conservatives spending the week in Budapest? Hungary was chosen as the venue for the May meeting of CPAC, that's America's Conservative Political Action Conference. Hungary's nationalist leader was the keynote speaker on Thursday. It's led to a few questions about why CPAC picked Hungary and what it tells us about the modern American conservative movement. Here's Hungarian historian Victor Sebastian speaking earlier this week to Today Explained on Vox.
1: Because... The guy who's presently in charge, Viktor Orban, is a winner. He expresses a kind of Christian nationalism uh, that has very powerful resonance, obviously, in America. They see that Hungary, small though it is and cut off though it is, and in Europe though it is, has actually managed to do many of the things that the nationalist right in America is aiming to
4: do.
0: Idris, to state the obvious, Hungary is not the United States. What makes those conservatives attending think it has lessons for the future of the Republican Party?
5: Yeah, look, Orbán um sort of has been in power for a long time now. He just was reelected to his fourth consecutive term after sort of this landslide victory in April. So going back to the, the point of a winner, you know, he's he's won four uh consecutive elections, so he's sort of seen as this conservative power who is able to win um and really suppress free speech, media, judicial judicial independence and um you know, really sort of promote this conservative view um, within a country that, that, you know, until his arrival was a bit more liberal. So I think there's this attraction to him because he has this ability to gain voters, win voters, um, and really shape the narrative of what conservatism looks like. And, you know, he's taken shots at people like George Soros. He's been accused of, you know, using public funds. So there's a lot of you know, sort of questions about Orban, but those seem to be ignored um, when you sort of purely look at, you know, this this sort of icon um, for, for, for the right and conservatives. And, you know, it, it's interesting also because we've seen this global shift, at least in Europe, towards conservatism and right wing. We saw, you know, uh, the, the French elections be closer, at least the first round, than many people thought. With uh, Marie Le Pen, we've seen um, Austria elect a a, a, sort of conservative right-wing leader. And so Orban really sort of encapsulates this global, um, at least temporary, uh, for now, um, tilt towards some right-wing conservative leadership.
0: Vivian, Viktor Orban has been neutral on the war in Ukraine, but the UN reports more than 600,000 Ukrainians have escaped to Hungary since the war started in February. What are refugees experiencing in that country?
7: It's hard to say. I mean, the Viktor Orban has been very um, outspoken with regard to his views um, on uh, immigration in particular. However, uh, Ukrainians in general have not necessarily experienced uh, some of the same treatment that you had for um, other other migrants that were coming from the Middle East and the Muslim world in general. Um you know, but he has, um, raised a lot of concerns, uh, about his just outlook and, and, and tendency toward, uh, remaining closer to uh to Moscow and the prospect of maybe uh you know shunning those Ukrainian migrants and so um it's a it's a question of where what is going to happen next uh, orban has said that he is a good friend of Ukraine and he would help the ukrainians um, but at this point it, it, it's hard to say if if indeed he wants to show um, that he is still a, an ally of Moscow that could change and Ukraine Ukrainians, you know, reportedly are feeling a bit uncomfortable there um, and do feel that, you know, they're, they're, the clock is ticking as far as the, the, this warm welcome that they may have received. And so it remains to be seen. But Viktor Orban has obviously been an outspoken critic of, of certain migrant communities.
0: And because of his relationship with Moscow, things could change in a, in a flip of a switch. So, David, what are you making of Orban's popularity both in his country but also with conservatives in the U.S.?
6: I think it should be a real worry. Uh, if you're an American who's not just worried about seeing strong men authoritarians with a kind of anti-immigrant message, but if you're concerned about you know the idea that there are forces on the conservative right in America who think that if they can mess with election laws, if they can uh, appoint their right judges and change the way that elections are decided, change some of the kind of constitutional checks and balances, if you're frightened about that, on the right in some states in America, you should be worried by Viktor Orban, because there's two reasons why the kind of the Tucker Carlson, uh, Donald Trump kind of nationalist right is in love with Viktor Orban. One, as Idris and and Vivian say, is that he keeps winning elections. Uh, And, you know, he's a culture warrior. That's another big thing. So it's very telling, I thought, that at this CPAC conference, uh, you saw a video message from Tucker Carlson, who's already done a program. He anchored a program from. Uh, from Hungary. Tucker Carlson said, you can tell that Hungary is a wonderful country. Why? Because the people who turned our country, America, into a less good place are hysterical when you point out how good Hungary is. So that's the kind of classic argument on the populist fringe of politics, which is, you know, don't get into the details of what a country is like. Just look at who dislikes it. And so we have the same enemies. So we should love Hungary because it annoys liberals. It annoys George Soros. George Soros, who is from Hungary, uh, endured the Holocaust in Hungary, has been subjected to the most appalling character assassination, uh, anti-Semitic campaigns as a kind of bogeyman in Hungarian politics. But it's also about the techniques that Viktor Orban uh, has used. He has used his changed the way that the courts work. He has packed courts with friendly judges. He has dismantled uh, some of the big democratic institutions uh, in Hungary. He has uh, changed media ownership laws to mean that there are essentially no voices in opposition to him. And if all that sent a chill up your spine in the United States, take, take attention to the fact that when Viktor Orban addressed the CPAC conference, he gave him advice. He said, you should do like I did the GOP doesn't have enough media allies. What you need is to have someone like Tucker Carlson broadcasted 24-7. You need to have more control of the media outlets. Have your own media, he said. That's the only way to beat the progressive left. And so it's not just that he is a culture warrior who believes the same things as the nationalist right in the States. His techniques are a kind of template that you see admiration for in the States. So there's every reason uh, for people worried about American democracy to be worried about strongmen like Victor Orban teaching lessons uh, to politicians back
0: home in America. Well, let's move to a story that sees the flashy world of Las Vegas colliding with the Chinese tycoon and critic of the Communist Party. On Tuesday, the U.S. Justice Department announced it was suing casino mogul Steve Wynn. The DOJ says Wynn should have registered as a foreign agent. Maybe you're a bit confused. David, I'm hoping you can fill in the blanks. Okay, so there are some stories that have the kind of the the rubber
6: stamp tangled at the top. And I will will try and untangle this. So Steve Wynn, uh, who until uh, a few years ago, uh, when he stepped down because of sexual harassment uh, accusations, was the head of a gigantic casino company. And it's not just Vegas that is the capital of gambling. It's also the Chinese territory of Macau, right down south near Hong Kong, where a lot of mainland Chinese go and gamble. And he was making a ton of money in Macau but he was not getting everything he wanted he was worried about his business interests so Steve Wynn the accusation from the US Justice Department is that he had some serious lobbying that he wanted to do and he wanted to please some powerful figures in the Chinese government and he found a guy who was a young rising star in the uh, national police service uh, a vice minister in the public security bureau uh, public security ministry Sun Li Jun, and basically He was lobbying him to to do good deals for his casinos in Macau, and he was going to offer him something in exchange. The Justice Department says that Steve Wynn, basically on behalf of this Chinese police minister, was lobbying President Trump and very senior officials in person in the White House in phone calls to try and help the Chinese get an extradited a person that they had accused of corruption, back out of the States. Now, the Justice Department, they're a little coy as to who this was, but their description of a Chinese businessman who had sought asylum uh, and had been charged with corruption basically matches a man called Guo Wengui, who is a self-styled billionaire, though he's recently filed for bankruptcy. Why you need to know about him is that Back in China, he was not a particularly political guy. He flees to America with a ton of money, sets up shop in Manhattan and realizes that if he's going to look after himself, he has to turn himself into a dissident, starts attacking the Chinese Communist Party, falls in with Steve Bannon. Remember him? Uh, Donald Trump's first policy advisor in the White House. Steve Bannon sets up a kind of right wing radio program out of Guongui's apartment in Manhattan. It could not be more tangled. And and uh, Guongui is still in the States very murky figure. Uh, and now Steve Wynn is arguing that he wasn't acting as a as an agent for the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese police ministry. And basically, the Justice Department is saying, yes, you were. And there is a law in America that if you're going to work for a foreign government at that level as a kind of envoy lobbyist, you need to register it so we know who is influencing our own politics. So
0: tangled and sleazy. That's what you need to know. Idris, what does Wynn face here?
5: Yeah, I mean, David did a great job untangling it because it truly is one of the more uh, confusing things that I've read in, in the past week. And, you know, basically this is one of those tactics where they're really trying to force him to register as an agent. Um, he obviously, uh, under Farah, he obviously is saying, look, I've done nothing wrong, um, so I don't need to. So it's one of those things that's going to go to court, and, you know, it, it could be a problem for him in, in the months and years coming forward. But it sort of really speaks to sort of this... Um, You know, during the Trump era administration, uh, there were things that happened that under normal or other administrations would have been, you know, sort of out of this movie type situation you could have never imagined, but appeared to be pretty commonplace. So I think uh, we're going to be in a situation where this goes to the courts and, and the eventual punishment could, you know, really be a problem for him.
0: We're talking to Idris Ali, foreign policy correspondent at Reuters covering the Pentagon, David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist, and Vivian Salama, national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. President Joe Biden has arrived in South Korea. It's his first trip to Asia as president. His first meeting was with South Korea's President Yoon suk Yeol, who was sworn into office just last week. Biden spoke at a Samsung semiconductor plant earlier today.
4: I and my country look forward to a very productive few days together where we can get to know one another better and explore ways to take the alliance between the Republic of Korea and the United States to an even greater heights than it already exists. And Vice Chairman Lee, thank you for welcoming us to the Samsung Semiconductor Facility. This is an auspicious start to my visit because it's emblematic of the future cooperation and innovation. That our nations can and must build together.
0: Vivian, what's the significance of this visit for US relations in Asia?
7: Well The Biden administration since day one has uh, promised that they would be focusing most of their national security policy, that they would prioritize relations with Asia, and in particular, its confrontation with China, cooperation slash uh, uh, challenging China. And that has been put on hold for one reason or another. Of course, we had the Afghanistan crisis last year, and then we have the Ukraine war at the moment, which has really sucked up a lot of bandwidth with for them, although they deny that and they say that Asia still remains their priority. And so by going on this trip, President Biden and his administration are really looking to emphasize that commitment. So he's stopping in South Korea uh, first and he is uh, meeting with allies there, but also, um, uh, focusing on, on business cooperation. He went to the Samsung plant, which is making semiconductors and he is, uh, you know, really affirming U S commitment toward working on manufacturing and cars and things like that. And the cooperation there, um, he's also going to be going to Japan meeting with quad members, which is Australia, India, Japan, um, and the U S to talk about that partnership. Um, His South Korea visit, uh, obviously, with the looming threat of North Korea firing nuclear weapons and testing nuclear weapons. This has been a a really big concern in recent uh, weeks, especially, and that concern is growing. Um, And also just the fact that the administration is so bogged down with the Ukraine war right now and there's so much going on there uh, that this whole commitment toward Asia and making cooperation and everything like that, continuing the cooperation, um, really stressed at the moment, obviously also with COVID and obviously also with um, economic challenges back home, there is this sense that the Biden administration has been so uh, preoccupied that it has not been able to prioritize this region. And so this trip largely aimed at uh, at countering that argument and showing that they are in fact committed to
0: Asia. Now, David, President Biden will later meet with Japan's prime minister and take part in a summit with leaders of the Quad. That group includes the U.S., Japan, Australia and India. What are Chinese leaders watching for on President Biden's visit? They don't like this at all. Uh, one of their
6: big gripes about President Biden is that uh, he is, uh, in their view, all of this alliance building, which in American kind of uh, kind of politics is seen as a kind of perfectly friendly thing to do. It's about keeping the world safe, gathering with our friends, promising to keep our friends safe. China has a different story. China's story is that NATO is a wicked block in Europe that caused the war in Ukraine, and America's alliances with Korea, uh, with Japan, uh, this quad, as you say, with India and Australia and Japan, but also the AUKUS deal with the US and the UK and Australia. All of these alliances that Joe Biden has showcased as the return of the America that we sort of knew and loved, uh, sort of a break with the kind of isolationism of the Trump years, all of that alliance building that in America is seen as a good idea and basically a benign and friendly thing to do, the Chinese see it as absolutely aimed at China. That is an attempt to contain and hold China down. The Chinese story is that the United States is a declining vicious, racist, bullying hegemon that does not want to have to share the top table with a non-Western power like China. And so it is trying to form Cold War style blocks of, sort of antagonism. And it's really important, this this trip to Japan, but also this trip to South Korea. You know, we've been too used for a long time to thinking of South Korea as the place where the American troops that might get hit by North Korean missiles. And that was basically all we thought about. But actually, it is a vital kind of component in this kind of arc of allies uh, around the whole coast of China. And Joe Biden has made it absolutely clear that he also, uh, and that's why he was in a Samsung factory, sees this fight as not just a military confrontation uh, with China, but as uh, as, uh, as as Vivian said, this is also about the kind of the future of kind of globalization. And so he was in a Samsung factory because Samsung, massive electronics company from South Korea, is going to open a huge plant in Texas, uh, employing thousands of Texans to build semiconductors in the US. And this is not just about containing China for military reasons but also about the economic threat that America might end up beaten in a contest with China economically and technologically. And you see all of those Biden administration people saying, you know, a foreign policy for the middle class, those jobs in a field in Texas brought by a South Korean company. That is the foreign policy for the middle class that is also challenging China
0: on a technological front. It's all kind of tied up in this incredibly important visit. That's David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. Also with us, Idris Ali, who covers the Pentagon and foreign policy for Reuters, and Vivian Salama, national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks to you all. one A senior producer is John Quillen Hill. Our managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Angiano produces the 1A podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.